This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Los Angeles Times headline traveler, USC's mascot, comes under scrutiny for having a name similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. It's, uh, it's an actual, it's an actual thing. Traveler, USC's mascot, comes under scrutiny for having a name similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. It's not even the same name. It's a similar name to Robert E. Lee's horse. Some, I put it on Facebook. Someone said, oh, no, my middle name is Lee. Guess I got to go, too. <laughs> oh, geez. When a movement is entirely based on being offended, you have to constantly find new things to be offended about. And it will never end. That's going to be one of the themes that we talk about in the next three hours here is that there's no end to this. If you think it stops tearing down Robert E. Lee statues and punching Nazis in the face, you're sadly mistaken. That's just the low-hanging fruit. Violent people don't one day decide, well, guess mission accomplished here. There is no mission. The mission is be violent. Let's find new ways, new excuses, new reasons to be violent. And new things to tear down, including the USC, the USC mascot horse. <laughs> what? Jeez, oh, how are you, Slater Siders? Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, that was some week, huh? I'm gonna be honest. I don't even know where to begin. I like. Uh, let me let's just dive into it. We'll we'll see what happens. We'll try to get to everything in the next three hours on my Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I did a, I did a week in review in 30 minutes uh, on a Facebook Live yesterday. So please check that out. Uh, we'll try to go a little bit deeper into some of those themes right here. Let me say this first. I fell for it. This was on Wednesday, I think. I fell for it. I did not take my own advice at all, and I would like to ask for forgiveness as I repent from my sin. The whole Charlottesville coverage, has it's driving me mad. Not anymore. I'm over it now. But it was driving me mad. I, I felt like I was living on a different planet watching people's reaction to it. There's zero perspective. There's zero honesty. And it's all a drug. I'll explain the drug part in a second. But everyone has lost their minds. This is the exact, this whole last week of outrage about Charlottesville, it's the exact same story as last week's outrage of the week. Do you remember the outrage of the week last week? I asked some people this the other day and they didn't, they didn't know. <laughs> and I told them what it was and they're like, oh my gosh, that was last week. That feels like seven years ago. The Google manifesto. Do you remember that? Remember the Google memo, the anti-diversity screed? This is the exact same story. It's the same story two weeks in a row. Different details, but it's the same storyline. So with the Google memo, you have a Google engineer who makes a 100% reasonable argument that men and women are different and here's science to prove it and women prefer different kinds of jobs. And maybe that's why women aren't, there's not as many women in technology jobs as men. And if we want more diversity at Google, 
then we should maybe change the job description and the work environment to make these jobs appeal more to women naturally as opposed to forcing it. And he was eviscerated, fired the next morning, and everyone twisting his words. He had the CNN anchor saying, well, basically he's saying that he doesn't want women near computers. What are you talking about? He was fired. And here's the thing. He was fired not for what he wrote, but for what the media claimed he wrote. Do you see the difference there? There was no honesty with the coverage. There was no perspective with the outrage. And none of it was based on reality. And what we said last week, the thing that was so matrixy about it, so weird, was that everyone who was outraged and complaining and whining about and lying about what this guy wrote, and it was right there. You could read it. We could all read it. And if you read the Google memo, 98% of people would read it and be like, oh, okay, like I may disagree with him, but I get it. Like there's nothing. But then you watch the coverage of it and everyone's apoplectic about it, and you'd be like, whoa. Wait, what's going on? I, did they read the same thing I read? No, they, they didn't read it. That's that's a thing. And we said last week, 90% of the people on TV who are outraged about it haven't read it, clearly. Anyway, I don't want to rehash all of last week, but it's the same outline, same script for Charlottesville. No perspective about the players involved, the amount of people involved. No honesty about Trump's reaction to it. And no reality about how we all interact with each other on a daily basis outside of social media and cable news. David Irsani was, uh, he fell for it too. I'm going to talk about what I mean by fell for it, but um, he fell for it. He was just entrenched in the news for the first two days of coverage, like Monday and Tuesday, all in the social media world, which is uglier than usual this last week. And he finally just, just, he turned it off and he had to go do some chores. So he goes, drives down the street to a big box store, crammed with people of all different races and ethnicities. And everyone there went about their daily business without wondering if there are Nazis and Antifa who are going to come knock them out in any moment, right? This is how we all deal with each other all the time. I was at the airport the other day. All kinds of people. And everyone got along swimmingly. Jack, my son, was on the airplane and it was a four and a half hour flight and he did great. But there's one point when he started crying and everyone was super nice. There was a black couple across from us and a black couple behind us and they were playing with Jack and we all did the small talk thing and their kids and our kids and oh, that's fine. I, I went to, uh, we landed, I went to Jersey Mike's to get a sub and there were four people working there, two black, two white guys and, uh, we yucked it up. There was, they were all wearing blue shirts except for one guy. One guy was wearing a red shirt. And I said, hey, what does that mean that that guy's wearing a red shirt? You're all wearing blue. He's wearing red. Does that mean he's the boss or is he the newest guy? He's the lowest on the totem pole. And one of the, guy, the guys goes, oh, that's Mike. And we laughed. And we had a great time for the four minutes of that sandwich making experience. And you could say these are petty experiences. But I mean, the point is that we work together all day long, all the time. Those four people work together all day and none of them think they're in the clan or what. And then we all interact. And this is like, this is all it's, it's almost all fake social media and cable news is not real life. It is not representative of the billions of daily interactions that hundreds of millions of people have every single day in this country. 
And not only is it an alternate reality, it's a significantly worse alternate reality. Now, reality isn't perfect. There's some problems we've got to work on. But you turn on social media and cable news and the world is terrible. It's irredeemable and it's exhausting. And the good news is, though, with, like, you can just turn it off. <laughs> it's like a video game. You can turn it off. It's a drug. You can stop taking and it's just sad that so many people are infected by it and addicted to it every single day. Hans Fien is one of my favorite writers, and I'm just mad that he doesn't write enough. But every time he does, I, just, I think he nails it. He wrote this the other day. I think this is perfect. He said, we are now a bunch of outrage addicts. We are addicted to outrage. We're a bunch of outrage addicts so desperate for our daily anger fix that we've turned ourselves imbecilic. We've turned ourselves into idiots trying to get it, trying to get what? The fix. What kind of fix? The fix of outrage. We've got to get our daily outrage fix every single day because we're addicted to it. We're all addicted to it. So when I started off the segment saying I fell for it and I didn't take my advice, what am I talking about? I fell for it because I turned on CNN. Now, I always say, if you ever feel the urge to turn on cable news, read a book. You'll be happier. You'll feel better. You'll be smarter. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. Don't watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Just don't. I beg of you, don't. Ever. It's not real. Don't fall for it. And on Wednesday, I did. I fell for it. I said, oh, I wonder what they're doing on CNN. Oh, it was a disaster. Uh, it's truly an addiction. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not joking. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, it's an addiction. I want to talk about the next. It's a, it's a classic process addiction. That's what they're called, process addictions. Um, there's a whole category. I'll talk about the science behind it and what it is and, and why we do it. Because it's not healthy. It's not good. So what is it? How do we break it? Why should we break it? And what do we do with it instead? We'll do all that next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Oh, it's called a process addiction. Uh, a process addiction is when you're addicted to a behavior. So it's a little bit different than being addicted to drugs or alcohol. Uh, process addiction would be gambling, shopping, playing video games, eating. Um, these are things that we do, behaviors we do that our bodies think we need in order to feel good. We, we think these things are important or they're good, they're necessary, but they're really killing us and killing relationships. Internet outrage is an addiction. It's an ideology for some, but it's an addiction for most. Social media outrage and cable news outrage. Basically the same thing. Cable news is less and less based on reality and more and more based on people's social media's interpretation of reality. Right? So you'll see headlines like, uh, you know, 
people upset with Trump's Charlotte, Charlottesville speech. And in the article, they'll quote three people on Twitter. Like they'll, they'll post Twitter comments that random people made. And you're like, well, you made an article about that? Like that. Right. So it's like news is becoming more and more Buzzfeed, just compilation articles from things people said on the Internet. So cable news is becoming more again, just just social media. But anyway, it's all it's all outrage and the addiction real and the mechanics of it. The addiction is real and the mechanics of it are very simple. We uh, when we get anger, when we get angry, our brains get a hit of dopamine just a chemical in our brains and it gives us a sense of euphoria and just like drug users get dependent on their substance of choice to get that same feeling people overindulge in outrage and end up relying on that behavior to get dopamine and try to get that euphoric feeling again so it requires more hits more often and more constant right like, like more out you got to be more outraged every time to get that dopamine hit so before if you were just a little bit outraged and you got a hit now you got to be even more outraged to get the same and then you got to be crazy out and then you gotta be outraged all the time about everything in order to get that hit all the time and that's us it's most people and you're saying oh so that's not me i don't i don't i guess i see what you're talking about but uh, okay, let me. Uh, I'll just ask you a question to see if you're an addict. And if you answer yes to this question, then you're an addict. I, I don't want to be rude. It's fine. I am. Uh, I'm going to raise my hand. So raise your hand. Um, well, let me just ask you. I'll ask it this way. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Very first. And I don't. So a lot of people said, oh, I, I uh, make some coffee. Before that. Before that. Someone said, go, go to the bathroom. Before that. Nope. Very first thing you do. I mean, I mean, you're still laying in bed. You open up your eyes. What's the very first thing you do when you open your eyes? How many people raise your hand? Check your cell phone. Okay, if you raise your hands, you're addicted. Uh, now, other than maybe find out what time it is. I don't even, that, maybe that doesn't count. But I mean, like open your cell phone. Like open it and check it. Uh, if that's the first thing you do reaching for your phone, then you're addicted to outrage because what's the, what do you do on your phone? By the way, I bet 90% of people listening right now, check their smartphone first thing in the morning, like still laying in bed. First thing, eyes open, check your phone. So why do you, why does this mean you're addicted? Uh, cause what are the, what are the three things you do when you first check your phone? You check your emails, check Facebook and the news. It's all the same thing. Rarely are emails and Facebook full of great, exciting, life-enhancing information that you should really look at immediately upon waking up. Right? There's usually something bad or outrage-inducing or anxiety-inducing, something you have to do or something you missed that you got to get know about right now. Right? Uh, so it's all, it's all to get that rush. It's to get that hit. Uh, especially if you check news first thing in the morning, then you are definitely addicted. We are all addicts. Go to CNN.com, turn on MSNBC, even Fox, just desperately wanting to be outraged and to know uh, who we need to be outraged at today and what we need to be outraged at. And we get our fix for the day. And then we get angry at someone we've never heard of or something that means nothing. And we enjoy the dopamine hit for a moment 
and then we go on with our lives now in a miserable mood. And then when it wears off, we got to go back for more. So I fell for this on Tuesday. Uh, again, my advice, or Wednesday, I think. My advice is whenever you feel the urge to watch cable news, read a book. So I watched CNN. Uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen cable news. It was, it was totally off the rails. It was Anderson Cooper's show. He had someone on, and it was a, a popular, well-known guy, super smart guy, right? Our uh, accomplished guy. And he said that Donald Trump is a danger to the country. He had someone say the, the presidency is at the lowest point in American history. There was a panel, like a 30-person panel, you know how they do? And some Republican said something kind of pro-Trump. And then some other person said, I can't believe that you would say that. Right? Like super holier than thou. I, I'm so disappointed in you. I can't believe what the Republican Party is turning into. I'm so upset. And it's like, oh, give me a break. And I was getting so angry. I was getting so angry. And after about 20 minutes, I realized how stupid this is because I should be with my wife instead of watching this. This is not contributing anything of value to my life. It's not real. My wife is here. She's real. Or I should be reading a book and learning something. So it gets to this panel and the panel starts yelling at each other. And I was like, oh, I got, I got to get out. Like, I got to get out of here. So I changed the station. I just boom, I hit up and I don't even know what channel it goes to, but it ends up on a commercial. Literally, I like, I go a CNN panel, boom, right to this commercial for the, a show called the wags, the wives and girlfriends of sports stars. It's on Bravo or E or something like that. And the commercial was just women yelling at each other. Oh, you said this, you know, you know, blah, 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 you know, I said that I'm going to, oh, you're, but it was like, Shelly slept with her best friend's husband or something. And they're hitting each other and backstabbing. And you said that and you said, and I was like, oh, that's a lateral move. It was basically the same thing I just watched on CNN. Like I went from CNN, Anderson Cooper show to this, to the wags. And it really wasn't, it's no different. I mean, the topics are different, right? But same same thing, same yelling at each other, same nonsense, same meaninglessness, same not real. You know, we, we think, oh, but CNN, the people are wearing suits and they're talking about politics. So that makes me smarter. That means it's smarter or better or more important or something. No, same thing. Same thing. And uh, I'm out. Please be out with me too. Read a book. It's so much better. Or watch Glenn's show because it has a purpose. There's a purpose to it. Not just to give you a hit of outrage. These cable news networks, they're, they're the dealers. They're outrage dealers. And they're just peddling poison. They're peddling drugs to all the users, the people addicted to outrage. Don't be a part of that. Get out of the game and uh, watch Glenn's show. That's about something real. Um, or read a book. You'll be so much happier, I promise. 
1-888-933-93. Alright, I boiled down one of the main themes of this whole last week. And I think this is one reason why people are talking past each other, not really listening to each other, is because some people really believe that the ends justify the means. I do not. We'll break it down. We'll make it relatable next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. I had Yaron on my local show yesterday. I've been talking to Yaron on my local show for six years. Uh, Great guy. He's a good man. Um, And I agree with almost everything he says. He uh, has a new book coming out here next month. Uh, His last two books are on the required reading list for the Mike Slater show. Uh, They're fantastic they're phenomenal they're so good please get them uh quick quicker reads simple easy really really excellent excellent that's why they're on the required reading list there's only like six books on the required reading list for the mike slater show and he has two of them um so please check those out i put them on twitter you go slater radio on twitter it's three tweets down and you see a link right there and uh pick both those up they're fantastic by uh yaron brook the Blaze Radios, Yaron Brook. Uh, all right, so I had a phone call the other day on my local show. I don't need to play it here. I'll just sort of give you the gist of it. Um, but first thing, it's going to be very tough to live in a society where if you're against Antifa, it means you're pro-Nazi. And if I'm against an Antifa person beating up a Nazi, I'm pro-Nazi. When really, I'm just anti-beating people up. And it's so weird that I'm the bad guy. Like, I'm, you and you, right? We're, like, you're pro-free speech. And you're pro-not beating people up in the street. And you're the Nazi. That makes you the bad guy. You're, you're for not beating people up, and you're the bad guy, right? It's going to be very difficult to live in that society, uh, but alas, here we are. Uh, this other the point that this caller made on my local show was that both people, and there's a lot of different sides. I, n- I never like when there's, like, well, two sides. There's always more than two sides, but let's just simplify it here. So you got the Nazis, and you got the Antifa. Uh, and he said, well, both are full of hate, but Antifa's hate is hatred of Nazis, right? So you have Nazis who, who hate, let's just say black people, right? Even though they hate a lot of different people, but let's just go with that, right? So you got the Nazis, you got the white supremacists who hate black people, but Antifa, they have hate, but at least it's, it's just hatred of Nazis. So that's, that's, that's more understandable. That was his point. And I asked Dominic, his name, uh, I said, uh, okay, are we only able to judge? Are we only allowed to judge Antifa by that belief? Or can we also judge them by other things they believe as well? And he said, well, like what? 
All right. Well, uh, I'll just I'll just do three, just because that's easy to remember. Uh, people in Antifa are anti-capitalism, and I don't mean anti-capitalism like your your uncle is a Democrat and wants to raise taxes on the rich. I don't mean that. I mean against the entire capitalist system that has made us the most prosperous and free country in the world. And they want to tear it down, which means if Antifa is successful in doing that, what would replace our capitalist system? Well, communism. What else could? Okay, so they're anti-capitalism. They're also anti-free speech, clearly. And if they're successful at that, what kind of society would replace it? A very violent one. And then people in Antifa are clearly anti-law. Martin Luther King Jr., the reverend, wrote eloquently about just and unjust laws and how it's good to break unjust laws. I don't want to go into a whole thing about uh, civil disobedience, but if there's an unjust law, like black people can't sit in the front of the bus, you break that one specific law. Rosa Parks broke that unjust law by sitting on the front of the bus. She did not break that law by, or she did not protest that law by burning the courthouse down. She broke the one very specific law. So she wasn't anti-law. She was anti-unjust law. Antifa's just anti-law. They just break laws that just, whatever, like whatever they don't like. And what does a society look like if we play by those rules? So Antifa, they're not just, they're not just anti-Nazi. They're violent, suppressive communists. They trick you and they're tricking people into thinking that they're doing good by knocking out some Nazis. But that's not their end. That's the means to their end. Their end is a communist state where you're not allowed to speak or think beyond what they say is appropriate. Disagree with us and I'll beat you up. Are you good with this? People are, oh, well, they're just beating up Nazis now. Even if they were, that'd be wrong. But they're not just beating up Nazis now. These are the same people who won't let conservatives speak on college campuses. These are the same people who shut down the Rose Parade in Portland because a local Republican Party group wanted to be included in a parade, a tiny local little parade that the county Republican group wanted to be involved. And Antifa wouldn't even have that. They shut down the whole stinking parade. So this isn't even a, uh, I'm always wary of, Slippery slope arguments. We don't make a lot of slippery slope arguments on the show because eh, it's not it's not the best argument. So, but I'm, I want to be clear. This, this is not. This isn't. Oh, geez. You know, if Antifa gets their way, maybe one day in the future, Republicans won't be allowed to march in local county parades. No, no, that that's already happened. These are things that they've already done. So if you're okay with Antifa punching Nazis, again, here I am at risk of being now pro-Nazi, but no one's really that stupid to think that. It's just the media makes it seem that. But anyway, let's say you're okay with Antifa punching Nazis. Are you okay with Antifa preventing all conservatives from speaking on campus? Are you okay with them stopping a local parade because a tiny GOP group dare march in it as well? So do you see how they're already punching everyone? they're already punching everyone so what what is this about this is ends justify the means that's what this is 
ends justify actually let me take a break let me take a break i want to come back and talk about the ends justify the means but let me end with this promise here they may be shutting down antifa may be shutting down the nazis now when really they're not they're actually giving the nazis more of a platform than they would if they just ignored them but let's say they're shutting down the nazis now that's today tomorrow they're shutting down you they'll never stop Never in the history of violent groups have they been able to just stop and contain themselves and restrain themselves and say, hey, great job, guys. I think we're done here. Let's go back to our day jobs. They never just stop. They just find new things that are racist, new things that are dangerous, new things to be outraged about, and new things to shut down, new statues to tear down, new people to punch. It never will stop. Hence, the article I just posted a couple hours ago on Facebook where the horse of the USC mascot, his name is similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. So they have to get rid of the, the horse, the mat, the horse, the mascot's horse because the name is similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. Okay. So, I mean, that's just a goofy example, but that, that, that's really happening. It will never end. All right, we'll wrap up Ends Justify the Means next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, pal, did I send you 1627? Is that the clip I uh, I sent over? Uh, Okay, perfect. Let's set that one up here. Um, So I want to talk about uh, freedom of speech coming up in a little bit, but let's talk about ends justify the means. So this saying, the ends justify the means, is uh, an evil idea. I really think it's only popular because it's easy to say. The ends justify the means. But if you think about it for a minute, you can see how evil and wrong it is. So it means that if you want to accomplish something that you think is good, the end, then you can go, go about getting there any way necessary, the means, right? So the, the, whatever you do to get there is fine, right? So even if the means are bad or wrong or evil or immoral, it's okay because the end is good. Wrong, 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 wrong. Uh, an extreme example, just, to, you, just so you can see this clearly. Uh, if I wanted my daughter to stop dating this boy, uh, right? that's a good end. A good end because I don't want them dating. He's a bad influence. So I kill him. Okay, that's bad. That's a bad means. Oh, uh, well, they're not dating anymore, so that's good. But, but no, that's not the best way of handling. Now, it's a silly example. A a real example, uh, because governments do this all the time. Stalin had a uh, a little bit of a Ukrainian independence movement going on in 1932 that he didn't like. Uh, So he wanted order and stability, which is good. So he ordered a famine in Ukraine, which killed 10 million people. 
So listen, bad means, sure, killed 10 million people, but at least we had order and stability at the end of the day. No, the ends do not justify the means ever, ever, ever. That is a lie. So I want to quote here or or play a little clip here of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking about this point. This was his Christmas message Uh, Sermon 1967. Here it is. One of the great philosophical debates of history has been over the whole question of means and ends. And there have always been those who argued that the end justifies the means, that the means really aren't important. The important thing is to get to the end you seek. So if you are seeking to develop a just society, the important thing is to get that, and the means uh, really aren't important. Any means that will get you there. They may, may be violent. They may be untruthful means. They may even be unjust means to get to a just end. There have been those who have argued this throughout history. We will never have peace in the world until men everywhere recognize that ends are not cut off from means because the means represent the ideal in the making and the end in process. And ultimately, you can't reach good ends through evil means because The means represent the seed, and the end represents the tree. Mm. It's one of the strangest things. Uh, It's awesome. You can't reach good ends through evil means, because the means represent the seed, and the end represents the tree. Hence, Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolence movement. So as I said in the last segment, it's going to be tough to live in a society where if you're against punching a Nazi in the face, that means you are pro-Nazi. And it's going to be really difficult to live in a society where a majority of people think that the ends justify the means. Or even worse, or more specifically, that violent means are acceptable. Because the means, the violent means, are the seed And the end is the tree. What kind of tree? What kind of society will we have at the end of that? What kind of tree will be grown? Think about it. If Antifa is the seed, what's that tree look like? Ayn Rand wrote, there is no justification in a civilized society for the kind of mass civil disobedience that involves the violation of the rights of others, regardless of whether the demonstrator's goal is good or evil. The end does not justify the means. No one's rights can be secured by the violation of the rights of others. And gosh, that's hard. Because the Nazis are awful. The white supremacists are sick. 
and they are twisted and they are deceived. But no one's rights, not even yours, can be secured by the violation of the rights of theirs. That's hard. It's hard. This is not a unique discussion. It's not a, it's not a new battle. It's a tale as old as time. Didn't, didn't the reverend say in there, he said, uh, this is an old philosophical debate. Nothing new under the sun and not with this either. So the question very simply is what kind of people do we want to be and work backwards from there? You know, I started this uh, Christian parenting podcast. You can find it on iTunes. Just search for Christian parenting. And the whole premise is that uh, we believe in purposeful parenting. So we think of the type of adults that we want our kids to become and we work backwards from there. And we talk with Christian leaders to figure out how to do that. And it's the same premise here, right? What kind of people do we want to be? You, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of people, what kind of society do we want to have? Figure that out and make, and make that real in your brain. Put it down on paper and then work backwards from there. We're not on the right track. And I think if we keep planting these seeds, well, that's just a sign of worse things to come. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Saturday's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Uh, so we just spent uh, last hour sort of doing a, well, I don't want to call it an overview because it's not. I think taking some of the bigger themes of this last week with Charlottesville and, and diving deeper into these things. And we were just talking about uh, ends justifying the means. And many people on the left believe that the ends justify the means. I'll give you just a quick example that I'm just looking at literally five seconds ago. Uh, It's a New York Times article about some protests that's going on in Boston. The headline is counter protesters surge into Boston overshadowing rally. So I just read the first paragraph. I don't even know who, who was hosting the original rally. It looks like maybe, I don't know if they were Trump people. I don't know if they were white supremacists. I don't know if they were just regular free speech people or whatever that even means. And then who are the counter protesters? Like, was that, is that Antifa? Is that what we're talking about? So now Antifa's just called counter protesters. Well, as we talked about in two segments ago, Antifa's a lot more than just a counter protester. They're a lot more than Nazi punchers. So I, I, but if we're going to call Antifa, counter protesters that's in a way it's saying well it doesn't really matter who they really are because at least they're shutting down the nazis the ends justify the means and it also doesn't matter how they shut down the nazis as long as they do people think it's okay to fight hate with more hate just with different hate and with violence why and how can you think that that will end well i say the best way to fight racism is not with more oppression or suppression. And certainly not with baseball bats and black masks. It's to bring it all into the light and, and defeating it with more speech and with loving action. 
but I'm the bad guy. That's what, <laughs> that's so weird. And I'm going to say this a hundred more times throughout the day. It's going to be really tough to live in a society where if you're against punching a Nazi in the face, you're pro-Nazi. But here we are. We said uh, in the last hour, there's always going to be things to be violent against. If you're a violent person, you'll never stop. You'll just find new causes. Let me give you another example. Uh, I mean, we talked earlier about Antifa shutting, trying to shut down the inauguration, shutting down conservative speakers, uh, shutting down the Rose Parade in Portland because, heaven forbid, a local GOP group wanted to be a part of it. Right? If, if you, this will never stop. This is what happens when you're fueled by hatred. So obviously, you know, the statues are coming down. Every statue is going to be brought down. Uh, And there's no end to this either. We talked earlier. Well, let me pull this up here just because you don't don't think I'm making this up. This is the LA Times just like an hour ago. I posted it on Facebook. Um, Headline, Traveler, USC's mascot comes under scrutiny for having a name similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. The mascot's horse, his name is similar to Robert E. Lee's horse. There's no end to this madness. Yeah, they're protesting taking down the statue of Teddy Roosevelt at the Natural History Museum in New York City. Teddy Roosevelt, he's on Mount Rushmore. So they start with Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. It's low-hanging fruit. They're going to move on to Teddy Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson and then George Washington and Woodrow Wilson and FDR. There'll be no one left. Because when you're a person who gets a high off of tearing things down, when all the statues are gone, you're just going to go look for something else to tear down. It will never end. There's a statue in Atlanta that the other day, some protesters vandalized. They tried to tear it down, but it's huge. It's giant structures. They can't tear it down, but uh, they tried. And instead, they just vandalize it. And this group said that their goal is to remove all the Confederate statues from Atlanta. The thing is, this is not a Confederate statue. This is a major problem when you have fueled by hate, violence mob no principle no end and 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 an evil immoral means you get a lot of innocent people caught up in the process now this is an innocent statue i got a story of an innocent person coming up next but this statue that they're trying they tried to tear down and they they uh, uh try to destroy it's not a confederate statue it's called the peace monument it was put up in 1911 it's a statue of a confederate soldier oh see cider confederate soldier gotta tear it down yeah It's a Confederate soldier on his knees, lifting up his gun, but above him is a giant angel, and she has one hand down to her side, just above the gun, keeping his gun lowered, and then her other arm is high above her head, holding an olive branch, representing peace. So this is a statue of an angel telling the Confederate soldier to stop fighting. This is not a Confederate war memorial. This is not a Confederate statue. It's the opposite. It's a statue of peace. It was put up by a group of people who after the war, after the Civil War for 50 years, traveled to the North to try and reconcile with Northern soldiers and heal the wounds of the Civil War. Mobs are not very thoughtful. But it's just collateral damage, right? Because the ends justify the means. And if some people get hurt in the process or if some peace statues have to get torn down in the process, whatever. Here's the story of Kyle Quinn. He works at a uh, engineering research center, the University of Arkansas. 
And just the other day, he was at an art exhibit at a museum and then went uh, to a restaurant with his uncle for dinner. And he got home and he saw thousands of messages from random strangers hoping he'd die. A quote from the New York Times, Mr. Quinn, who runs a laboratory dedicated to wound healing research, was quickly flooded with vulgar messages on Twitter and Instagram. Countless people he had never met demanded he lose his job, accused him, accused him of racism, and posted his home address on social networks. Fearing for their safety, he and his wife stayed with a colleague this weekend. So people thought that they saw a picture of some guy at the Nazi rally and they thought it was him. I don't know how they figured, I don't know how they narrowed it down to this guy. They were wrong though, right? It's not, it's not, he wasn't, he was a thousand miles away from the rally. With, he was at an art museum. But they're trying to destroy him anyway. Even though they got the wrong guy. He says, you have celebrities and hundreds of people doing no research, not checking facts. I've dedicated my life to helping all people, trying to improve healthcare and train the next generation of scientists. And this is potentially throwing a wrench in that. Doesn't matter, collateral damage. This is no big deal if you're someone who thinks that the ends justify the means. Don't let anyone get away with that. It is a total lie. Mm, maybe I could share this story next. I'll share a quick story. All right, so there's another statue that they're trying to tear down in Tennessee. Yeah, this fits in nice. We'll tell the story of this person that they're trying to tear down. When you hear his name, you will think Confederate general. Uh, these people who are trying to tear it down will think KKK member. No one will think about the third part of his life, the third part of his story. We'll tell you that person and his story next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. So I guess we've I've, I've paid a lot of attention to Antifa in this show and, and this last week, just because I feel like people don't know who they really are, um, and we all know who the white supremacists are, and we know they're awful. So I feel like it's all assumed that like we're all on the same page with that. But in the name of making fun, mocking, ridiculing these uh, white supremacists, uh, I don't even I, I don't even I can't even find the right pejorative. To describe them, I, I don't even monsters. Like I don't know. I, I go back and forth. Like call, I want to call them clowns and losers to dismiss them, but they're so deceived. I, I just don't even know. I don't even know. But whatever. We're on the same page. Um. So we did a long study on this a couple months ago. You may remember about race and how there's no such thing as race. Again, uh, sometime in the future, we'll we'll go through this all again, but. Uh, there's only one race biologically, scientifically, there's one race. There's no such thing as race. And anyone who talks about race is using language created in the 18th century specifically to justify enslaving a new group of people. There used to be the, the British colonies used Irish slaves in Jamaica 
Think about that. So you had white people enslaving other white people in a country of predominantly black people. And then a couple of years went by and they said, well, why don't we enslave black people too? And they're like, well, we can't or have never have or, huh? So they came up with a scientific justification too uh, by measuring the volume of skulls of people from different areas. And uh, they found that the black person's skull was smaller, therefore dumber than the the bigger skulls of white people. Therefore, uh, white people are superior to the dumb, small-brained black people, and we can now enslave them. So that's where race came from. So if you use that language, and if you continue the concept of race, then you are using that language of um, just just was unscientific. Uh, it's wrong and immoral and super racist. So stop using it. Don't let people get away with it. But anyway, uh, a group of white supremacists agreed to do some DNA testing. And it turns out a vast majority of them were not as white as they thought they were. Which leads to this amazing paragraph. Quote, some rejected the tests. Some of the white supremacists rejected the tests entirely, saying that an individual's knowledge about his or her own genealogy is better than whatever a genetic test can reveal. The person at UCLA, the sociologist who did this, they will talk about the mirror test. They will say things like, if you see a Jew in the mirror looking back at you, that's a problem. If you don't, you're fine. Others, he said, responded to unwanted genetic results by saying that those kinds of tests don't matter if you are truly committed to being a white nationalist. (sighs) In other words, don't judge me by the results of my DNA testing. Judge me by the content of my white supremacist character. (laughs) That's what that is, right? They get their test results back and they're, you know... 50% 50% from Europe, 50% from Africa, whatever. And they're like, oh, uh, whatever. That test doesn't matter. What really matters is how much of a white supremacist I think I am. So don't judge me by the reality of my DNA. Judge me by the content of my character, my awful, horrible, deceived, dark, insidious character. <laughs> Hilarious. Anyway, here's a story I wanted to share um, just about collateral damage. So we, we shared a quick story about the peace statue that, that these uh, this mob wants to tear down, which is absurd. Uh, we shared the story of Kyle Quinn, a guy who is not a white supremacist to the left. or these again, I don't want to say the left. This mob trying to get fired and destroy his life. Uh, here's another person's legacy that the mob is trying to destroy as well. So you got statues, people, and legacies. Nathan Bedford Forrest, there's a bust of him in the Tennessee Capitol building. And a bunch of protesters came down wanting to tear it down. Police standing guard to protect him. This is because Nathan Bedford Forrest was a Confederate general and grand wizard of the KKK. So let's destroy him, his statue, his legacy. Uh, now, we're not really sure if he was the Grand Wizard, but he was in the v- very beginning of the KKK. So, super racist, fought for the Confederacy. 
He's the worst. The thing is, is it worth it? And this is an honest question. Is it worth mentioning? Is it worth considering? Is it worth knowing that he vehemently renounced the Klan a couple years later? Not at the end of his life, pretty quickly after joining it. He joined it right in the beginning. A couple years later, renounced it wholeheartedly. Not just, nah, I don't really like this group. I'm kind of busy on Wednesdays. This is, ooh, wow, not what I thought. Some Klan members killed a black man. And he wrote to the governor of Tennessee, he said that we need to, this is a quote, we need to exterminate the white marauders who disgrace their race by this cowardly murder of that black man. We need to exterminate the white marauders who disgrace their race in the cowardly murder of that black man. Does that sound like a Klan member? Sound like a super racist guy? He advocated to allow black people to go to law school. He gave a speech to a black organization. Can I, can I read it? He said, when I can serve you, I will do so. We have but one flag, one country. Let us stand together. We may differ in color, but not in sentiment. I've been in the heat of battle when colored men asked me to protect them. I've placed myself between them and the bullets of my men and told them that they should be kept unharmed. Go to work, be industrious, live honestly and act truly. And when you are oppressed, I will come to your relief. So you got Nathan Bedford Forrest giving that speech into a front of uh, an organization, a black organization, a local newspaper, a racist newspaper called his speech, uh, the recent disgusting exhibition at the recent Negro Jamboree, a disgusting exhibition. What Nathan Bedford Forrest did there by creating harmony among black and white people. So we can go on. The point is he renounced the Klan, renounced racism, and fought and advocated to improve relations among black and white Americans and lift up into positions of influence black Southerners. Is that worth considering? No, just just tear, tear, tear him down? You know, it's funny, usually conservatives are accused of being too black and white. And by that, I mean, um, you know, right and wrong, not enough nuance, not enough gray. And it's progressives who come in and say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's important to know this and this and the little nuance here. And things aren't as simple as black and white, right? But for whatever reason, when it comes to our history, our American history, it's either good or bad. You're on one side or the other. Nathan Bedford Forrest, Confederacy, bad. That's it. Robert E. Lee, bad. To the point where not only are we going to tear down his statues, we're going to go after the USC's mascot's horse because the horse's name is similar to the name of Robert E. Lee's horse. What? These purity standards are really dangerous. That's what I want to talk about next because that's what these are. These are purity standards. And in this this culture, this fetish we still have for diversity, um, the goal of the super progressive left who's pushing this diversity fetish is a form of racial purity, which is no different than what the white supremacists want and think they have right 
before they got their DNA test back. But they think that's what they have. They, they, and they want racial purity. So does the far left. Each side, each side wants its own form of purity, its own form of racial purity, its own form of cultural purity. This is why cultural appropriation is a big thing on the left. You can't appropriate another person's culture, right? You can't, you white person can't have tacos. You can't have taco Tuesday or whatever, right? I mean, I'm not even kidding. That's a, that's a real thing, but you can't, you can't, white people can't listen to black people music or whatever, right? So, so we have to have cultural purity where we're all separate in, in little groups and the white supremacists want racial purity. Same thing. When really we should be focusing on becoming closer as Americans. It's pretty sick, but both these sides are bringing us to the same place, just different ways about getting there. But you know the truth. You know where we really need to go. You know what we really need to do. one 888 93 We can talk for a few more minutes about that coming up next. one 760 kfmb Also, I was flicking through the channel the other day, and I came across uh, a show from 1972. I'm going to tell you about that show and this person's message next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Gave the wrong phone number a second ago. Sorry about that. It's one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. My bad. Uh, so you heard the the media this week do a lot of a lot of pundits do the old uh, oh, the president missed an opportunity to unify the country. You hear that all the time, and it's either uh, anger or sad. Oh, we could have unified the country. Two reasons they say that. First. It is a great example of a standard that is impossible to achieve. Right? There's nothing he could have said or done that would have unified the country. Right? It's, a, it's an impossible standard to achieve because it's, it's subjective. Right? No matter what he did, no matter what he said, the script is already written. The media, the pundits can always say, well, he didn't do this. He should have said this. He should have done this. Um, if he went to Charlotte, it would have been, oh my gosh, he's, he's, you know, but benefiting from the tragedy. If he didn't go, oh, he could have unified the country, blah, blah, right. He's all, it's, they decide whether or not he's unifying the country and no matter what he does or did, they would have decided he's not doing enough to unify the country. So that's why they use that. The second reason is because the media is the worst at unifying the country. They are number one, without a doubt, the great dividers of this country. They are, they are job description. As we talked about, we kicked off the show talking about uh, outrage addiction. Their job, their business model is to increase dissension and drama and hatred where it does not exist. And they do it every single day, 24 hours a day. Their entire industry is drama and hatred and discord and yelling at each other and propping up white supremacists 
to give them more of a platform so that then they can have an excuse to prop up this other Antifa group and then they go yelling at each other and that's their news for the day. So I love it when pundits and cable news talks about how the president is not doing enough to unify the country when they are truly the great dividers of this country. Let's talk about the rise of white nationalism. Have you talked about that? Have you heard about this? This rise of white nationalism. There is no rise in white nationalism. Or I should say there's almost zero rise of white nationalism. I'll spare the whole analysis, but I'm giving them a tenfold generous accounting for their membership numbers, and they make up 0.03% of the population. White supremacists. White supremacists are 0.03% of the population, and I'm multiplying the number of people, a number of white supremacists by a factor of 10. What are we even talking about here? So I don't even think it exists. But let's pretend that there is a rise of white nationalism in America. Why is there? Let's first look at your marriage. Uh, as to, to give an example here. Uh, have you ever gotten defensive with your spouse or any relationship? But And by defensive, I mean you stand your ground on something that's absolutely meaningless just to make a point. Or you get attacked for, you feel like you're attacked for something, so you attack back with something else. I mean, I'm, I'll just make up an example. Just off the top of my old dome piece here. Uh, let's say you guys don't put away your dirty glass and, and you don't put it in the dishwasher, you leave it on the counter. Like, I'm just making that, <laughs> I'm just making that up. I have no personal experience of doing this. But let's say you were to do that and your wife says, you never do anything around here. And you say, oh yeah, never? I don't do anything? Well, you never, right? And then she doesn't wash the glass and you never put away your glass because you're trying to make a point and then poof, it just explodes from there. Uh, have you ever done that? <laughs> I never have. Now, this is not a marriage counseling show, but the proper response for everyone involved, the wife would say, honey, I feel overwhelmed with this thing going on today. Can you please help me with the dishes? And the husband says to them, to himself, to himself, uh, be a man, help your wife. And out loud says, yes, wife, I'm sorry. I did not put that away. I'm just super tired right now. I'm really sorry. I didn't do that. Then you get up and you put the dish away. Situation diffused. That's how you do it. Instead, uh, we all do it very differently. Uh, Dr. Gottman has four, he calls it the four horsemen of the marriage apocalypse and contempt uh, well, contempt is the one we talk about in my book, how to change someone's mind available on amazon.com today. Uh, the other ones are stonewalling criticism. And then this one is defensiveness. So defensiveness is when you defend yourself from an attack with a counterattack. You never put the glasses away. Oh yeah. You never keep the car clean. Oh yeah. Well, your mother said, Oh, whew. now we're, now we're way out of control. So we've all been there. We get it. It makes perfect sense. It's not right, but we get it. We've seen it in our marriage and in other relationships. What does this have to do with the rise of white nationalism? Uh, let me just be very, very clear. I hate that I have to do this, but I'm not excusing anyone's behavior here. I'm just saying what's going on. Nonstop these last few years from the left has been uh, identity politics. Definitely a decade uh, really the last five years, it's been game on. And by game on, I mean 
really against white people. This indictment against white people as a race is pretty new, right? There's always been this diversity thing we've been talking about and all that multiculturalism and stuff, but this just anti-white. And then there's also been attacks. You know, there's been racism people against Jews, against Italians, against the Irish, Irish need. Right, all white people, which is funny because Irish and Italians and Jews are never considered white. Now we're all white. Um, I mean, we talked. I don't know if we. I think we talked about my local show. There's a course at Stanford, uh, and and part of it is about abolishing whiteness. Controversy up there was about kicking white people a day without white people. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea, right? So we, we can go on forever. There's tons of examples of this. They have, um, uh, what do they call them the, when the college freshmen come on to camp or orientations, they have college orientations now where white people aren't allowed. So this is really weird attacking of whiteness. So if you have all these race baiters attacking white people, you're bound to get white race baiters to respond. Aren't you? What else would you expect? I don't, I'm obviously not saying it's right, but what, I don't know what else would happen. When you have a giant movement that is anti-white, you're going to get a defensive counter movement that is very, very pro-white. And there happens to be a name for that already. It's called Nazi. When you sow division, you get more division. When you sow hatred, you get more hatred. Galatians 6, 7, a man reaps what he sows. And if that's true for a man, it's true for movements and it's true for societies. And here we are. Pretty obvious. So what do we do? Pretty simple. You stop the division. W.E.B. Du Bois, born in 1868, black man, just after slavery. He said, work, culture, liberty. All these we need, not singly, but together, not successively, but together, each growing and aiding each work, culture, liberty, and all striving towards the vaster ideal that swims before the black people, the ideal of human brotherhood gained through the unifying ideal of race, the ideal of fostering and developing the traits and talents of the Negro, not, and here's the key, not in opposition to or contempt for other races, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic in order that someday on American soil two world races may give each to each those characteristics both so sadly lack. Whoa. Uh, That's what we need. So here's a black man just after slavery saying that uh, hey, black people, uh, work, culture, liberty. Let's all work. Uh, let's strive for these things, these traits and talents um, to, to better ourselves, not in opposition to white people or in contempt for white people, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic. Wow. The greater ideals of the American Republic. Republic. You mean the same American Republic that is also being torn down in the media and academia? There are no, there's no such thing as greater ideals of the American Republic to the left. We are a country that is racist to our core. Yet here's W.E.B. Du Bois, 1868, 
not thinking that right? and saying, oh, let's, let's, let's come together and conform to something bigger than us and more important than skin color. It's amazing to me that the black leaders of that era, of that era, advocated for unity. And they advocated for unity because of slavery, but black leaders today advocate for division because of slavery. My point is when there's a movement to attack whiteness, you're going to get some white people to start identify with their whiteness more and more, which makes us all a bit more tribal. And that's bad. Transcend. This is why American ideals matter. This is why higher callings matter. This is why culture matters. This is why it's important to strive towards things beyond our surface level differences. But all of these higher callings have been destroyed systematically by the very same people who are dividing us. And also by the very same people who are criticizing the president for not uniting us enough. Please give me a break. You want to know the great uniter? And the great uniting message? I saw it on TV yesterday. I'll share it with you next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So I turned on the TV. This was two nights ago. Uh, nothing was on. Kept scrolling. Came across Billy Graham's classic Crusades. And I was like, oh, this is good. I'm going to watch this. Uh, and it was Billy Graham speaking to an audience at Harvard and Yale. And I was like, oh, cool. Because clearly he'd be punched in the face if he tried to speak there. Or if, or if uh, Billy Graham tried to speak at Harvard or Yale today. All right, think about it. the bigotry, the homophobia, the sexism and racism in the Bible. <sighs> Too much for oppressed peoples to handle. You know, people who have never read the Bible, that's what they would say, that the bigotry, homophobia, racism, and sexism in the Bible would be too much for me to handle. They haven't read it, of course. but uh, And which is kind of the point, actually. The story that Billy Graham started out, his Harvard speech was, he said, uh, or this is the Yale speech, he said, Last time he was on Yale's campus, he went out to dinner with some students and he was sitting next to a guy and the kid said, uh, you know, I'm an atheist. And Graham said, have you ever read the New Testament? Well, no. Wow, so, so you've never read about Jesus's life, but you reject him. That doesn't seem honest or intellectually fair, uh, but, but it's okay. I challenge you to read in the next six months the New Testament. And all the other students around the table are like, oh, he challenged you. You got to do it. We did. And six months later, he wrote to Billy Graham and said, well, I'm no longer an atheist. I'm agnostic. 
which means I don't really know, but Billy Graham was happy with that progress. But then the student went on and he said, well, you are right about one thing, Mr. Graham. It's doing something to me, and I'm not quite sure what. I share this story because look what a decent, honest dialogue accomplished. Compare And look at also what you could take Billy Graham and an atheist student could sit next to each other over dinner. And they talked. And it was fun. That right? Like all the other students, oh, you challenged, right? I mean, they had a fun time. Are those days long gone? Compare that with what Antifa and, and the college campus left does today, preventing all interactions with other people. Again, this idea of a cultural purity and a racial purity and, and, and an interaction purity, a, a, I don't even know, a society purity, I guess. I guess that'd be kind of cultural too, right? You, if, uh, we can't, I can't even talk to you because we disagree maybe on something. This is why we must always defend freedom of speech. Always, for everyone, always, no matter what, especially when it's difficult. Oh, it's easy to defend freedom of speech for you, know, you and me or for the Democrats or whatever, but it's hard to defend it for people who you vehemently, reprehensibly disagree with or who you vehemently disagree with who are reprehensible. That's way harder, but it's more important or as important. Anyway, I bring it up because his speech was about moral principles. And uh, the question when you talk about moral principles, the question is, well, who sets them? And Graham said, listen, you can do whatever you want, but the moral principles in my life and the ones that I think would help the country the best are if we all followed the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Golden Rule. Live your life like that, and, uh, and if our society lived our lives like that, then we'd be fine. And is there anything more unifying than the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Golden Rule? The Golden Rules treat others as you would wish to be treated. There, nothing can possibly be more unifying than that. Ooh, we've strayed. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I want to talk about social justice in the next segment and tell you where that word came from. Uh, you will be surprised. It comes from 1840, I believe is the beginning of it. Uh, and it had nothing to do with with what it is now, obviously. So we'll do that in a second. But right now I want to talk about the Victimhood Olympics. Uh, there's a book coming out. It's going to be co- it is called, and it will be coming out, uh, The Once and Future Liberal. The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics. It's by Mark Lilla, uh, who's a uh, professor at Columbia University, Ivy League. Uh, let me quote him here. He says, as a teacher, I am increasingly struck by a difference between my conservative and progressive students. Contrary to the stereotype, the conservatives are far more likely to connect their engagements to a set of political ideals and principles. Ideas and principles. 
young people on the left are much more inclined to say that they are engaged in politics as an ex, concerned about other exes and those issues touching on exness, and they are less and less comfortable with debate. Over the past decade, a new, very revealing locution has drifted from our universities into the mainstream media. Speaking as an ex, this is not a benign phrase. It sets up a wall against any questions that come from a non-ex perspective. Classroom conversations that once might have begun, I think A, and here's my argument, now take the form, well, speaking as an ex... I am offended that you claim B. What replaces arguments then are taboos against unfamiliar ideas and contrary opinions. So there's a lot there, but uh, this is a natural extension, extension of there's no such thing as truth. Right? To a progressive, it's all my truth. So where it used to be, uh, I believe in A, and here's my argument. Now it's, well, speaking as an ex, speaking as a black transgendered male, cis, what, I don't even know, black transgendered gay male or whatever, huh? I now, or no, it's not even I believe this. It's speaking as a black transgendered uh, gay man. I'm offended that you claim A. Whoa, so this is identity politics. This, is where, this isn't where we go, we're going. This is where we are. There's no such thing as truth. Now, if I may, this is why the Bible is so unifying. Because in John 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It gives life to, light to everyone everyone no matter anything about you or your background or your identity or your social group or income or skin color or favorite sport or previous behavior or anything at all the light of everyone is coming into the world and has since come into the world I, I i say that i started off saying that as an aside but in reality it's the only thing that matters because that's the only that's the ultimate solution to the problem but we can't talk about the bible in polite company we can't talk solutions. We can't talk the ultimate solution. We can't talk about the great unifier in our world and in our society. We have to beat around the bush and have different tribal group battles like a bunch of idiots when the truth is right in front of us. But anyway, uh, back to victimhood Olympics. Frank Bruni wrote in the New York Times, uh, let me be very clear, he ultimately came to the right position here. Uh, so he started off his piece a bit ironic. So I'm not criticizing Frank Bruni as I go through this, but it'll make sense in a second. He started off his New York Times editorial saying, I am a white man, so you should listen to absolutely nothing I say, at least on matters of social justice. Now, he's saying this, but that's what people say on college campuses. You are a white man, a white cisgendered man. Uh, I mean, straight. You can't say anything. You can't tell me. It's funny. Social justice warriors, they have this. Uh, they have two statements. You must understand my experience and you can't understand my experience. You must understand it and you can't understand it. So if you go on a college campus and you say, well, I'm a white man um, or no, you say anything, they'll say, well, you can't understand my experience because you're a white man. Therefore, nothing you say is valid. 
you must understand it and you can't understand it, which is, what do you do with that? Anyway, Frank Bruni says, I have no standing, no way to relate. My color and gender nullify me. And he goes on with that. But then he says, but wait, I'm gay. So at first he had no standing to say anything about anything. So in the great competition of victimhood, right? The victimhood Olympics, he has zero points because he's a white guy. So no points awarded so far. You're a white guy, no points. But he's gay. Ah, now it's good. Get an extra point. But the good news for him, he, I mean, I mean, the question now is, well, you're gay, you get a point, but how gay? That's, and he says, and I mean gay from a different, darker day. When I was a kid, sometimes I quaked inside, fearful of what my future held. Back then, the 1970s, gay stereotypes were unchallenged, gay jokes drew hearty laughter, and exponentially more Americans were closeted than, closeted than out. We conducted our lives in whispers. Then AIDS spread, and we wore scarlet letters as we marched into the public square to plead with Ronald Reagan for help. Oh, that's, that's pretty gay. That's a lot of victimhood there. So that's like ding, 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 lots of points now. Now, Frank's not saying this is a good way for society to conduct itself. He's saying this is how society conducts itself. <laughs> He's saying this is how most progressives and even Democrats think these days. They think in terms of the victimhood Olympics. So what do we do with this? Again, you must understand my experience and you can't understand my experience. What do we do with Frank Bruni? So I'm, I'm certainly not allowed to say anything. I am a white cisgendered male of privilege. So my opinion means diddly squat. Frank Bruni, white privileged male, but gay. So he, I'm last place in the victimhood Olympics. You want to win the victimhood Olympics, right? I'm last place. Frank Bruni, eh, he wasn't on the podium, but now he's gay. Bronze medal? I mean, the gold medal goes to the, right again, the, the black transgendered, Native American poly pan queer what I, I, I don't even know right but just start rattling them off and then that's the gold medal winner most oppressed so you get this we can't operate this society can't work like this this doesn't this is not good so and it's funny because in all of human history it used to be you were judged based on how well you overcame difficult things in your life. Today, you're judged by how poorly you overcome difficult things in your life. So it's totally flipped. So what's the truth? Uh, The truth is Martin Luther King Jr.'s message, which is the Declaration of Independence's message, which is the Bible's message. Judge people by the content of their character. That's it. That's the truth. Thomas Williams tells the story of his dad, who's black, grew up in segregated Texas. But he said his dad is way more of a worldly man than his white grandfather on his mom's side, who's super racist. And Thomas says he does not recognize his father as a victim. His dad doesn't recognize himself as a victim because he overcame, which is what all virtuous people 
have always done or at least tried to do. But today, virtue is given to those who can't even. That's the expression the kids use these days. I can't even. So you get points for not being able to overcome. Uh, I'll end with Bruni. He said, at the beginning of this column, I shared the sorts of political details, excuse me, personal details that register most strongly with those Americans who tuck each of us into some hierarchy of blessedness and affliction. So you know some important things about me. Right? The straight, white, male, but gay. You know important things about me, but not the most important ones. How I responded along the way. What I learned from them. And as a result, those or dismissed on its own merits. My gayness no more redeems me than my whiteness disqualifies me. And neither, I hope, defines me. That's perfect. Obviously, that's not where we are at all. That's judge me by the content of my character, not by really anything else. But that's not what the Church of Social Justice preaches. I want to talk about social justice, where this word came from, and how it's been perverted. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network all right so let's talk about this word justice um it's been taken over by the progressive left uh added a word in front of it social justice but now it's it, they've, it's now it's just justice again there's a, a black author her name's loretta ross she calls herself a justice feminist a justice feminist what could that possibly mean? What's a justice feminist? A jo- I, don't, I don't even know. Uh, there's reproductive justice. Uh, remember the New York Times op-ed, I think we read it last week, maybe two weeks ago, and the person said that being pro-abortion is racial justice, which is odd because 900 black babies are killed every single day in abortion. Uh, they call that racial justice. Again, that's something that a white supremacist would say. That's what's... Right? Wouldn't a white supremacist be like, oh, good, racial justice, fewer black babies? But no, it's something that the progressives are supporting. Anyway, uh, what else? Climate justice. All right, so all these different justice things. Um, so they take the word justice, they tack on different things to make it more difficult for you to be against the policy that they're proposing, right? So if you're not for abortion, you're against justice. You're against reproductive justice. If you're not for cap and trade, then you're against justice, climate justice. If you're not for higher taxes, then you're against social justice and just justice, right? And the reason that works is because for our whole lives, when we pledge allegiance to the flag, we pledge allegiance to justice for all. So they're putting you in a bit of a bind here. 
right? If you're not for this progressive policy, then you're against justice. Well, hold on. Wait, I, I believe in justice. I believe in justice for all. So justice has been co-opted as a, as a political movement. So let's go back to the beginning of it uh, and the beginning of the word social justice. It was actually first used by Catholics in 1840. So here's the gist of this. It was in the 1800s. I actually go back earlier, 1600s. A lot of people were moving from the country into cities. And then the Industrial Revolution, this really kicked up in the 17 and 1800s. And this was creating a drastic social change. Obviously, right? You have life in the country versus life in the city. And that was changing the model of a family and the behavior of families. All society had ever known is basically an agrarian life. And the Industrial Revolution created a lot of chaos to that. Chaos to the social fabric of Europe. And families were split up. Um, you know, Dad would work in a different city, be away for a long time, if not forever. And just that the family bond was changing and based on their perception, breaking. So enter an Italian priest. His name was Luigi Taporelli D'Aziglio. Got to do that. I mean, you can't pronounce that name not without. He said in 1840 that we need to recover an ancient virtue called general justice. And he went on to change it a little bit, and he called it social justice. Now, keep in mind where this was, right? This was amidst a time of social change from country to city. So social justice. So enter uh, the Pope, Pope Leo the 13th. This is 1891, who wrote to Catholics everywhere that indeed we do need social justice, meaning we need to emphasize once again the things in our lives and the priorities in our lives that make for strong families. He emphasized the love we need to show to children. He felt that amid this social change from country to city, uh, we were leaving our kids behind. We were forgetting our kids. So his challenge was to reaffirm your love for your children. And then, of course, there was a rededication to feeding the hungry and taking care of the sick and the widows and all that. So basically, social justice was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes. Now, here's the key with this. The people that came up with this, right? They said, we need social justice and we... Christians need to live the Gospels so that we can live free from state government control. Right? That, that was the point. That's what the Pope said. We need to cooperate with each other and associate with each other in virtuous ways. And we need to strengthen our families so that the government doesn't take us over. We don't need to give them a reason to have more control over our lives. That was the point. That's very important. Do I need to express that again or are you with me? Which leads us to today. Because social justice today has literally been twisted upside down to mean government control. They say today that every problem in society 
can't be fixed by personal growth or mutual aid or volunteering or heaven forbid through the church or by strengthening the family. Every problem in society has to be fixed with more government. So far from social justice originally being used to turn us into better people, now social justice is all about forming a bigger government, which is the opposite of what Pope Leo XIII had in mind. If you don't believe me, I'll quote him here. He says, it is, he said, it is impossible to reduce civil society to one dead level. What's he talking about here? Uh, he's talking about equality. He says, socialists may in that intent do their utmost. Right, they're going to try to make us equal, but they're all striving against nature. There naturally exists among mankind differences of the most important kind. People differ in capacity, skill, health, strength. An unequal fortune is a necessary result of unequal condition. Right? So we're all different. And we're going to end up ultimately different in the end, right? Unequal fortune in the end. So he was against today's social justice version of equality, which can only be forced achieved through government force. So social justice today, it's progressives all about attaining equality through government control and government force. But social justice started out as a call for everyone to get closer to God and everyone to get closer to your family so that the government doesn't need to take over control. Isn't that wild? Social justice was, let's improve our lives so that we don't need the government to come in and take us over. Today, social justice is, we're going to have the government come take over. That's social justice. It's the exact opposite of what it originally was. one 888 Now you know the rest of the story. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network. Spread the word. is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater Crusaders, i want to wrap up the show talking about hate and what it does to us how it makes us lose control act out of our minds but in this segment i want to talk about how it's become institutionalized so i mentioned in passing that stanford has a new anthropology course it's called white identity politics where students will quote survey the field of whiteness studies and discuss the possibilities of abolishing whiteness. So that's the institutionalization of this. Uh, to prove the prevalence of it, someone wrote this on Quora. It's a website you go online and ask questions. Someone said, is it bad that I laugh at a homeless white man for how much they screwed up their privilege? So you see what this does. Um, if we can't judge someone by the content of their character, which is a deep, thoughtful, insightful, meaningful thing to judge someone off of. 
who they really are, we start to judge people off of super superficial things. And when we can do that, it's easy to put people into others, into groups, and dehumanize them. So we can dehumanize each other. We have filled generations of kids with so many lies about what privilege is. When to be, and let me be very clear here. Everyone who lives in the United States of America in 2017 is among the most privileged people to ever walk the face of the planet. I'll say it again. Everyone who lives in the United States of America in 2017 is among the most privileged people to ever walk on the face of the planet. And somehow that's a controversial statement. I don't know how. But we've built, and academia has built these lies based on identity groups and that white people are privileged. Um, Let me share a couple things on this whole idea of white privilege. First of all, I asked my father-in-law if he feels that he uh, experiences white privilege. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, when I wake up at 3 a.m. every morning to go to work, I don't feel too privileged. I'm in Tennessee right now visiting my wife's family, and we went to uh, see her grandma. And her grandma was telling me stories about how she grew up in a uh, two-room house, 12 kids. Um, she would, her mama would break big biscuits in the morning for lunch and they'd go to school with biscuits and all the other kids had sliced white bread and she was seen as the poor kid because she had biscuits, homemade biscuits, which sound delicious, by the way. But the other kids had bread. Um, I don't like I don't I see the privilege that she had growing like um so I lived a very nice childhood in the suburbs, nice small town, upper middle class, great family, great community, good school. I don't apologize at all. My parents worked really hard to provide me with that life. And their parents worked really hard to set them up so that they could provide that life for me. And I work really hard to provide Jack with a life for him that is good. <laughs> and I very tangibly think about setting up not only Jack's life, but his kids and his grandkids. This is not something to be ashamed of. This is nothing to apologize for. This is admirable. I, I talked to, I've talked with many immigrants who have come to America and the reason they come to America is for their kids' future and for their grandkids. This is admirable. It used to be. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to give their kids a better life? It used to be good things that my parents worked hard and played by the rules and avoided self-destructive behavior and increased their virtue and taught their kids characteristics that would lead them to be successful as well both financially and spiritually and intellectually and socially and all these, nothing to apologize for. And this is possible for white people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian people. Again, Asians always left out of the race in America conversations because they generally embrace these qualities pretty well. But the point is we're all just identity groups. And it's all about whoever's in power. And whoever's in power can other people and other Groups And right now in academia world, whiteness is the othered. So 
to the point where if you're a white homeless man, you are now set up to be laughed at. There's just zero empathy going on. It's just hate. They're so seeped in this hatred. Just like people today, young people have been taught that America invented slavery. They think that white people can't live in poverty and white people don't live in poverty and white people don't have difficulties in their lives and all or whatever. Like it's so sick. But I want to be clear. It's not just academia. It's not just Antifa. It's all over the country and all different types of or d- different places in our country. And, and I don't, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this. Um, but there was a, a protest and, and a call for a boycott at the Santa Monica symphony because the Santa Monica symphony was having a fundraiser and they invited a guest conductor who was a conservative. So remember this story again, when I share this, because Antifa, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people think Antifa is just anti-Nazi. So I'm okay with Antifa because they punch Nazis in the face. Okay, if first of all, you shouldn't punch people in the face, but even if that's all they did, maybe we could have a conversation, but that's not all they are. That's not all they do. That's not all they believe. And those aren't the only people they punch in the face and the only people they silence. Antifa is pro uh, anti-capitalism, so pro-communist, anti-law, anti-free speech. These are not people that you want to throw your support behind. Earlier, we talked all about how the ends do not justify the means and all that stuff. Um, And how, as MLK said, the means are the seed, the end is the tree. If we're planting, if Antifa is the seed that we are planting, then that is going to grow a really ugly, evil, immoral tree. But people seem to be giving it a pass. But Antifa is violent, but you still have a, the, the entire progressive strain, certainly in colleges, but even outside of it, that is just as bad, maybe not as violent, but just as bad. So the upper class progressives in Santa Monica are protesting and boycotting because the guest conductor is a conservative. So I saw the headline and I said, well, who, who's this conservative? Who, who do they have as the guest conductor? It was Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is a brilliant completely reasonable and sensible scholar and a lover of the arts of the classics. He's guest conducted at many other symphonies before and everyone's losing their mind because we're all in identity groups where we don't have things in common. It's not that, Oh, I like classical music and so does Dennis Prager. Great. No, 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 no. It's he's an evil, bigoted conservative. But who's really being bigoted? Everyone needs to cool it with this crap. We used to relate to each other as American or as Christians. And when these identity groups, when these identity groups, American, the higher ideals of American heritage, as W.E.B. Du Bois said in 1868 or 1890 or so, uh, those have been destroyed. Those have been broken down. And now it's just game on. And when that happens, tribal warfare will only increase. What else could happen? What other end do you see other than tribal warfare? When we can't unify and when there's nothing to unify about, 
everything that we used to unify around has been taken, has been destroyed. And then even if we want to unify over classical music, for instance, we can't. Well, now what? More division, more hate. I want to talk about hate next. We'll wrap up the show with that. And then, of course, what we do instead of that. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Yeah, I just want to wrap up here talking about hate. Um, so the guy who organized this rally in Charlottesville, I guess he's the organizer. I don't know. Uh, wrote on Twitter the the girl, the woman who died, who was killed, uh, was a fat, disgusting communist. Communists have killed ninety four million. Looks like it was payback time. Uh, he has since said it was, my account was hacked. And then he said, uh, where is it? Mm, said he was taken. There it is. Uh, I repudiate the heinous tweet that was sent from my account last night. See how passive that is? Not that I sent last night. It was that was sent from my account last night. Uh, people who are not apologetic always put a passive. They remove human agency from what happened. Right, the tweet was sent from my account last night. Uh, you know, murderers will say the gun went off, the knife went in. Another example, right? The the tweet that was sent. <laughs> uh, I've been under a crushing amount of stress and death threats. I'm taking Ambien, Xanax, and I've been drinking last night. I sometimes wake up having done strange things I can't remember. So this guy's a, lives a really sad, miserable life. Um, I mean, that seems like an objective. I don't mean that even disparagingly. I just like that seems pretty obvious. Um, the people who are at that rally are just really full of hate. I, I bet you could feel the darkness if you were there. Uh, nowhere you'd want to be, right? People yelling at the top of their lungs, pushing, punching, fighting, reveling in it all. That's the thing too, right? They love it. They go punch someone. They get punched. They get in a fight. They back away from it. They love it. It's the word I've been using the whole show. These people are deceived. They've been lied to their whole lives and they just can't see reality. They can't see truth at all. And then they get around other people who are equally deceived and then they just lose themselves in it. I, I, I want to say this statement and I don't mean this as a point of pride. I think everyone with the right posture is capable of doing what I'm about to say. But I truly believe that I could be at that rally, the one in Charlottesville. Uh, I could take any anyone there black lives matter um white supremacist super progressive and antifa whatever i don't don't even know who was there right i'll take anyone there go on a walk down the street to a coffee shop sit down one-on-one talk for an hour and i could walk them off their ledge of hate No doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind that I could do it. No doubt in my mind that you could do it if we had the right posture going into it. I'm not saying I could make them into a you know, 
Christian or follower of Jesus in 60 minutes, but I could walk them off their ledge of hate. Truly believe that. How? Um, asking them questions. That's it. Calmly, one-on-one. It's got to be one-on-one. Sitting down. Um, the more they talk, eventually they hear themselves and realize how stupid they sound. Most people who are deceived like this, they don't hear themselves. They, they, they're in their head. Or if they say it out loud, they're saying it to a crowd. And you, you, don't, you don't listen. You're, you're saying it for attention. And you're not listening to what you're saying. But if you sit down with someone and you ask them questions with no agenda, you're just genuinely curious, like where this came from. And I talk about this in my book. Um, you just get them talking. They start to hear how ridiculous they sound. This is how Daryl Davis, the black blues playing piano man, converted over 200 Klan members. Daryl's a black guy and he would just sit down with Klan members and ask them questions about their beliefs and he would watch their entire worldview crumble at their feet. <laughs> now, there's a bunch of reasons why we don't do this more often. One of them is uh, we tend to isolate ourselves more because of the internet. Uh, also we're reluctant to sit down with other people and talk. We're busy. And also it's like, Oh, I can't sit with a, you know, if I sit with this guy, then it's going to be like Trump sitting down with Kim Jong-un and I'm legitimizing them. Now, Daryl Davis would get a ton of heat from the NAACP and other black activists for sitting down with Klan members and having them over for dinner. And they'd be like, Oh, you know, we're, we're doing all this stuff to stop white supremacy and you're eating dinner with these guys. And he'd say, I've converted 200 Klan members. What have you done to end the clan? And then they shut up. We feel like we have to talk to each other like we're all cable TV pundits. Get in the quick sound bites. Win the moment. We only talk at best at each other. We never, never with each other. And this hatred just builds up and then explodes and no one ever talks to each other and it's ridiculous. We isolate and we dehumanize. And in the end, it makes it a lot easier for someone to get in their car and drive it into a pile of other human beings. That's the end of that. Well, I mean, it actually goes much further than that even, but this is where we're headed. More of this. Uh, my book's called how to change someone's mind. You can find it on Amazon, but um, so much hate. Let me quote here. I'll wrap up this. This is a woman who used to be in the, the social justice warrior cult. As she said it, She said, since shedding the prison of my former ideology, I have a renewed passion for reading, philosophy, psychology, history, and spirituality. And instead of trying to fix others, these days I try to focus on improving myself. Uh, I feel like a lot of these white supremacists need to do a little bit of that as well. And we can all do that. If we don't, it's easy to spiral out of control. Slater Crusaders, follow us on Facebook, please. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We do a bunch of Facebook Lives throughout the week, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.